Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. A new service aimed at speeding up the conveyancing process. Pension scheme deficits are at record levels. Is your plan one of them? And what can you do about it? Plus the latest salvo in the long battle over fund fees. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all this week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford and Judith Evans plus a special guest Tom McPhail of Hargreaves Lansdowne. Just before we start, I'd like to apologise for the non-appearance of last week's show. We had a technical problem here in the studio that prevented us from recording the show properly. Now, imagine you've found the house of your dreams. Your offer has been accepted, you've got your mortgage finance all lined up, you've found an eager buyer of your existing property and you're all set to go. You'll be in your new house within a month. But it rarely works out so smoothly. Because it's at this point that the solicitors or conveyancers get involved and everything slows to a snail's pace. Got a building control certificate for that loft conversion? Is there a party wall agreement? Is that shabby fence on the left-hand side your responsibility or the neighbours? Is there any asbestos rope in that ancient boiler? So many questions, all of which, it seems, can only be answered by correspondence on paper rather than phone or email. But help is at hand, thanks to a new service called Veo. It's been launched by the Law Society, the body that represents solicitors, and James Pickford has the details. James, Veo has pledged to, quote, drag conveyancing into the 21st century. Uh, that sounds a pretty big claim. How are they going to do it? Well, it sounds bold, but it wouldn't be the first time that people have um, talked about modernising uh, conveyancing. This is the formal legal process for transferring property ownership. And it hasn't really changed very much at all for 100 years or so. And what makes Veo interesting is that as you say, it's been set up with the backing of the Law Society. Because the Law Society is the main representative body for solicitors, the prize here is that if they can get a good majority of those uh, to sign up to this, then you could see a point uh, in time where house buyers and sellers can go online and look up not only what's going on with their own transaction, very much like a sort of track my delivery for online purchases, but they could also see how things stand all the way up and down a house chain 
And as anyone who knows who's been in a house chain, um, it's a very stressful thing to be sort of beholden to others in this process. And typically, they will know very little about where the bottlenecks are, where the sticking points are coming. And this could throw light onto all that. It also creates a sort of deal room um, where lawyers and estate agents can go online, upload documents and amend them online uh, within legal limits. Okay, well, conveyancing is uh, obviously quite an expensive part of the uh, sort of house moving process. Will this be free for consumers to use or is it going to be another sort of layer of costs? Veo says it will be free for house buyers and sellers. Um, It's their solicitors who will pay a fee of some kind and it's not yet been announced what this will be. It could be a monthly or an annual charge along with a fee per transaction. And some people have been talking about a per transaction fee of less than £20, but we don't yet know. And in fact, the fact that they haven't released the details of the fees when it's due to launch early in April is causing a little bit of frustration in the industry, particularly as VO, the brand, is already being advertised on the the hoardings and big sporting events like the Six Nations last weekend. The other thing that professional users can't at the moment see is what it would look like and how it would work in practice because there's no beta testing site available for them to explore. But Veo says this isn't particularly surprising as it's commercially confidential and they want to make a a big splash with it at launch. Why is the the conveyancing process so slow at the moment? Is it these the inertia of the legal profession or is it the fact that actually they are required to do um, certain things in a very kind of longhand way? It's a bit of both. It's partly the culture of conveyancing among the 5,000 or so solicitors that do this work regularly. A lot of them prefer paper. They like to send things by post. They think it's more reliable, less open to fraud. And in fact, fraud has become a big problem for law firms uh, recently as people try to clone their websites and impersonate their banks. But one lawyer I spoke to uh, said conveyancing had actually slowed down since he started working in the 1970s. Um, And that's largely because of the tighter rules on money laundering. Now, everyone, of course, welcomes these extra checks uh, for security, but they do stretch out the process even further. Also, (laughs) the phrase online conveyancing is a little bit of a misnomer because the law doesn't actually allow you to do certain things online, such as signing a mortgage deed or a, a property transfer. And until digital signatures uh, are permitted, there won't be true online conveyancing. That being the case, it does nevertheless seem quite logical that large parts of this uh, process should be automated or at least uh, made more transparent using the internet, which after all has has revolutionised banking and other areas of financial services. Why do you think hasn't someone sort of stepped in and created something like this earlier? Well, I should make it clear that there are actually a number of initiatives, quite a number of initiatives, either to connect estate agents and solicitors through property websites Uh, And there are some lenders who use panels of approved solicitors who have set up online portals for them to exchange information. So there has been a lot of activity. And people have, of course, as I say, talked about this for many years. The big one was the land registry, uh, which tried to set up something comparable in in the noughties. But uh, having spent £41 million on it over six years... Uh, It abandoned the project in 2011, uh, citing escalating costs and the fact that its members just weren't that interested and were were rather worried about the security implications. 
that is not to say that people feel the same way now. And in fact, Veo argues that instant access via the internet is so ubiquitous now for, for so many financial and retail services that it can no longer be resisted. Thanks very much, James. You can read more about Veo in this weekend's FT Money, which is available in print as part of the Weekend FT or online at ft.com forward slash money. It's also available on iPads and Android tablets. Still to come on the show, do you know how much your fund is costing you? Do you care? We look at the latest attempts to make investing costs more transparent. First, though, let's have a look at workplace pensions. Millions of employees up and down the country are enrolled in pension schemes provided by their employer. And for many, it's their primary retirement savings vehicle. But this week, the Pension Protection Fund said the aggregate deficit on the 6,000 or so schemes that it monitors had swelled to a record £370 billion. Many of these are so-called final salary schemes, most of which are now closed to new joiners because their cost to employers has become so onerous. If you're in a final salary scheme and perhaps coming up to retirement, should you be fearful? Tom McPhail, Head of Pensions Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne, is on the phone. Tom, welcome to the show. The word deficit uh, sounds quite uh, quite disturbing and certainly not very reassuring, but what does it actually mean in practice if your pension scheme is in deficit? Uh, OK, clearly it's not a good thing in the overall scheme of things, but you, as an individual, as a member, only really need to worry about it if one of two things is happening. Uh, because in the normal course of events, your employer will keep putting money into the scheme, and, and as long as there is a supply of money coming in, the fact that it's in deficit at any given moment isn't an issue, unless uh, either the employer goes bust, in which case there's no new money coming in, and, and, and the deficit gets crystallised, and then it can become a problem, or you choose to transfer your money out of the scheme because at that point the, the, the scheme managers can elect to reduce the amount of transfer value that you're entitled to to reflect the current funding position of the scheme. And with such large deficits at the moment, that could mean the amount you're offered as a transfer value will be reduced uh, as well. What's caused uh, deficits to swell in this way? I mean, it's not as if we've had a collapse in the stock market or anything. No, in fact, if you look at the scheme assets over the last year, they're up uh, around 13.7%. Um, and indeed, they were up 3% in, in January alone. Uh, the problem is not the assets. The problem is, is the liabilities, which are calculated by reference to, to gilt yields. And in the last month alone, the liabilities have increased by over 9%. Uh, and over the last year, they, the liabilities have increased by 40.7%. And that is all driven by falling long gilt yields. And therein lies the problem. Hopefully, also potentially one day the salvation, because if, if, if the decline, declining gilt yield does ever reverse, that will then result in falling liabilities again. So when you say uh, liabilities, what, what you effectively mean, I guess, is the is the total amount that will have to be paid out or that they estimate will have to be paid out to uh, members of the scheme once they've retired. Is that right? Absolutely. So uh, if we're taking a snapshot of the funding position of the scheme, 
the current assets is reasonably straightforward. It's investments. But the liabilities uh, have to be worked out on the basis of what it's going to have to pay out to its members in the future when they reach retirement. In order to calculate that, they have to project forward to when those members reach retirement and the pensions that will have to be paid to them then. They have to work out how much cash they'll need available at that point in the future to pay their pensions. And then they have to work back to today to work out how much money they need now to meet that liability in the future. And it's that bit that's the problem because the discount rate where they work back from the future sum of money to today is calculated by reference to gilt yields. Low gilt yields means you need more money now to meet that liability in the future. And right now they're saying you need a whole lot of money because they're not expecting, uh, uh, because it's all based on, on very low gilt yields. It sounds from what you're saying is that a lot of this is actually Uh, not so much a real problem as an accounting problem. Is that a fair comment? Um, To some degree, yes, and hence my observation that um, really this only becomes an immediate problem if either the employer goes bust or you choose to transfer out because at that point you crystallise that funding position. For as long as the employer is paying money into the scheme and the assets are there, this question of the liabilities can be managed in the long term. There are issues for businesses because the the pensions regulator has responsibility for ensuring that the schemes are well run. And to some degree, it then has to go to the employer and say, look, I see you're running a huge deficit here. Can you explain to me how you're going to make up this deficit? Could I please see some contributions going into the scheme? And that can then put pressure on employers who find themselves having to divert profits, uh, which would be used elsewhere, into the pension scheme to help close that gap. Yeah, we've seen that a lot lately, haven't we? Most obviously with BT. But can you um, remind us in the extreme case where uh, a pension fund's liabilities are so large uh, and and so onerous that the company ends up uh, uh, failing and going into administration, what happens then? I mean, people don't just lose their money, do they? No, absolutely. And there is a compensation scheme in place. And if you're already past your normal retirement date, Ordinarily, you would expect uh, the the Pension Protection Fund, the compensation scheme that's been set up, to to, to guarantee to pay you 100% of your pension entitlement. Even if you've not yet reached your normal retirement date, you can expect to get 90% of what you were entitled to, up to a cap, which currently stands at around £32,500 a year of final salary pension. If you're a high flyer entitled to a large six-figure pension payout, that might be pretty disappointing. For, for most people, a guarantee that you're, you're protected uh, for, your, for your final salary pension up to at least £32,000 a year plus is, is probably going to be enough to make sure you're not in penury in retirement. So there is a good compensation scheme in place and, and the pensions regulator and the pension protection fund have this job of, of protecting scheme assets and making sure that no one really ends up in a catastrophic situation. Thanks very much. That was Tom McPhail, Head of Pensions Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Don't forget that the issues we've been discussing relate primarily to private sector pension schemes. Public sector schemes operate in a different way. On to our final item for today. The cost of investing has become a hot topic in recent years, with arguments raging over whether fund managers are actually worth their salaries or investors should just invest in an ultra-cheap tracker product instead. But I'd wager that many investors still haven't any idea how much their fund actually costs to run. Now, that might be because they don't really care as long as it's turning in a good performance. Or it may be, as critics of the fund industry assert, because the fund managers don't want you to know the full story. 
This week, the body that represents the open-ended funds industry, the Investment Association, issued yet another discussion paper about fund costs, how to calculate them and how to display them. Judith Evans has been reading it. Judith, the debate about how much funds charge investors seems to have been going on for years, possibly even decades. What's the argument about this time? Well, there are various figures which appear on fund fact sheets um, representing the fees that you pay um, that might be called the total expense ratio, the annual management charge or the ongoing charge. And confusingly enough, none of these really include all the costs of investing in a fund. So the latest issue is the question of transaction fees, which aren't being paid to your fund manager. They're the fees that the fund manager pays for trading securities within a fund. And those costs are passed on to you, the investor. Under pressure from regulators and from campaigners, um, the Investment Association has suggested that funds should start revealing these fees. That's quite an important step because estimates of how much they add up to have really varied. Some of them suggest that they could as much as double the fund fee, whereas other assessments say they're actually much lower. This could depend, of course, on how much your fund manager is tinkering with what's inside the fund. So the Investment Association has suggested that fund companies should start to reveal these numbers um, and campaigners have welcomed that step. And if they were to do so, I mean, I appreciate that it's it's quite difficult because, um, in a sense, because, uh, the, as you say, the, the, the amount of charge will, be, will depend on the amount of trading that's going on. But if they were to be revealed, where would that information be displayed? Because isn't one of the problems that, that you just can't find this sort of thing consistently presented? Well, that is one of the problems. Um, These proposals aren't confirmed yet. They're subject to consultation. But the Investment Association has talked about presenting them in point of sale material, i.e. what's given to investors when they first buy in. So it does look like it won't be too tucked away. Do people really care about this? I mean, I've talked to advisors who say that, that all this sort of fuss about fund costs is a bit of a distraction and what people should really be focusing on is performance after costs. Well, that's a good point. When you see the performance of a fund, it does, of course, incorporate costs and fees. So you can see how you're doing after all the calculations are done. However, of course, you don't know how your fund is going to perform in the future. So knowing the extent of the costs and charges can be quite a useful tool in comparing different funds against each other in the process of deciding um, whether you want to invest. And if you, the end investor, have better things to do, which wouldn't surprise me, um, it's still a useful tool for advisors, wealth managers um, and even execution only fund supermarkets, um, which do offer recommendations of of what they think is a good fund to invest in. So I think there's a decent argument to be made that um, it's useful for these figures to be out there. There's been a lot of debate uh, lately about whether fund managers are really worth their money and whether they're just uh, being paid a lot of money to do little more than track an index. Do you think the industry is willingly embracing change or do you think that they're they're being pushed into it by sort of relentless uh, campaigning and regulatory clampdowns? I think it's a mixture. When you talk to different companies about this, their views really vary a lot. Um, And we've seen that um, not only with cost disclosure, but also with the question of active share, i.e. how different a fund is from an index. Um, Some companies have been very willing to come forward with these numbers, probably because they believe that um, it'll reflect well on their products. So um, I think there's an element of carrot and stick, really. Um, Certainly without campaigners and regulators, perhaps these developments wouldn't have happened. But there are fund companies who are very much in favour of revealing this information. 
Thanks very much, Judith. There's more on the great fund fees debate in this weekend's FT Money. Other highlights include an interview with Lyndon Thompson, who is busy running the UK's most popular biotech fund at the relatively tender age of 33. We look at whether you should consider exchange rates when making investment decisions, and my column looks at the issue of the minimum wage, after David Cameron this week called upon business to give Britain a pay rise. The Money Show will be back next week when Lucy Warwick-Ching will be in the hot seat. But for now, it's goodbye from me, James, Judith and our special guest, Tom McPhail. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.